This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome everybody to Kremlin File. Uh, today we've got an absolute fabulous guest, Joe Chirinchone. Now he is a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We also serve as president of Plowshares Fund, and that's a foundation that focused on nuclear non-proliferation and conflict resolution. I think this is really important right now yeah. because, right, the big question that all of us have are about nuclear weapons and, you know, the, that, the threat of that. So I'm glad that, you know, he was able to find time, right, to come and talk with Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Also because he served as director for nonproliferation as well at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And he served as security advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's written books. One of them is called uh, Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It's Too Late. And we are welcoming Joe Chirinchone. Joe, oh. I'm pronouncing your name <laughs> that in is Italian. Beautiful. That's exactly that's exactly right. Giuseppe Chirinchone. That's, oh my God. That's that was my grandfather's name from Sicily. Really? That is how you would say the name. But Sicilian. Sicilian. So we have, right. so we have super <clears throat> intelligence with us today because you need to know that Sicilians have a reputation of being extremely intelligent. Okay. As we all know of, from watching you know? The Princess Bride. You well, know, there you go. Never there go up go. against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so today, actually, Joe, we're really happy that you came along because one of the big questions that we are getting constantly, everywhere I go, as soon as they say, oh, you know, Monique, you know, what's going on, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Ukraine, and so on and so forth, uh, they want to know about nukes. Mm -hmm. Okay, they want to know about nuclear weapons. They want to know about the threat, so on and so forth. But I don't think we should, I think perhaps it's best to start off a bit basic and then let's move, okay, on to no, uh, more in depth, okay, as we go forward. So the very first thing is that in, in the reading, a lot of people don't know the difference. They read it in newspapers, they see it on the news, and they hear terms like strategic nuclear weapons and tactical nuclear weapons. Joe, what's the difference between one and the other? Yeah, it's largely range. It's where you're going to use the weapon. It's not the size of the weapon, because what you could call a tactical nuclear weapon could have the same yield, the same explosive force as the same warhead you'd put on a long-range missile that could span the oceans. What we mean by tactical are weapons that are, that are going to be used in the battlefield or in a particular okay. region. So in, in the days when I started, in national security in Washington in the 1980s, we were worried about a Warsaw Pact invasion, the, the Soviet Union invading uh, West Germany. And we feared that we couldn't stop 
that armored tank assault. And so we'd need tactical nuclear weapons that we could fire from artillery pieces. Colin oh, Powell, okay. for example, used to head up an atomic um, uh, artillery brigade um, or, or short range bombs, bombs that would be dropped from short range fighters or short range rockets. So something that would travel hundreds of miles, not thousands of miles. And the explosive okay. force can vary. Um, for example, the Russian weapons that we might be concerned he'd be using, the ones that could fit on the cruise missiles that he's already mm. been firing, or the Iskander um, short-range ballistic missiles that he's already been firing, those can be fitted with a nuclear warhead. And the, the yield would range from uh, 10 kilotons, 10,000 tons of explosive force, to over 110 kilotons. Okay. By comparison, the Hiroshima bomb was 15 kilotons. Wow. So we're talking about something that's the size of a Hiroshima bomb or perhaps as much as 10 times larger. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. And then and just obviously... to finish this out, the strategic nuclear weapons can be the same size. Yeah. For, you know, for example, okay. we have on some of our Strategic weapons are about 150 kilotons, but they, they, we and the Russians go up to 500 kilotons, even a megaton, a million tons of TNT. Okay. And those are the weapons we put on long-range missiles and bombers that can span the oceans. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Joe, did you hear today, I think there was uh, news that they had, right, Olga, that they had tested uh, a nuclear weapon today? Or, Not a weapon. Or they didn't, yeah, what was that? It was in, was Col that? Yeah, it was in Kaliningrad, right? Exactly, exactly. So ever since Putin has, has taken office back in 1999, 2000, he's been combining any conventional military exercises with nuclear exercises. He's been doing this for some time, and he's increased the tempo. So all major Russian exercises where they're testing out things that you're seeing them do in Ukraine now, they've coupled that with tests of nuclear-capable systems. So right before the invasion of Ukraine, for example, when he was doing what he called military exercises on the border, he tested six different nuclear-capable systems, planes, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, not with warheads, just the delivery vehicles just okay. to test the range. And that's what he did in Kaliningrad, um, I guess, yesterday. yesterday. Testing, it's, and and he, he's doing it on purpose. Mm -hmm. So while it's a test of, you know, how mm. would you use a nuclear weapon in a conventional war scenario, he's mm -hmm. also clearly sending yet another nuclear signal, mm. back off, don't mess with me, I could go nuclear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is uh -huh. what they've been doing. Yeah. So yeah. I follow um, with the propaganda, Russia. right? With yeah. all the propaganda. Yep. So I follow Russian media and I follow their propaganda. And I can tell you, um, they started discussing nuclear weapons in December. And in December, they were using fear-mongering tactics, you know, scaring uh, attempting to scare, <laughs> didn't scare Russians, but attempting to scare Russians that they can... Um, uh, that U.S. and NATO were preparing a nuclear strike on Russia, on Russian soil. Um, so they carried on, and then we saw the shift of propaganda, and there are two, uh, several messages being sent. One are the threats to the West that are designed to the West with, the, like today, the you know testing of deli delivery vehicles of nuclear weapons, um, and also telling the West that, you know, we're reminding the West that they have nuclear weapons. And then at home, they have the fear mongering 
of that uh, they're in danger, their national security is in danger. And then there was another messaging that has been building up since February, which is them discussing Nazi, uh, Nazis, uh, n- uh, Ukrainian Nazis, what they call, and uh, nationalist mm-hmm. and Ukrainian military and Ukrainian mm-hmm. intelligence services rigging a nuclear plant inside, and that they have intelligence, that they have been preparing this in the Kharkiv nuclear facility, that they're doing it in Saparija and Chernobyl. How serious do you take the threat? And out of all the scenarios, do you see Russia pulling off one of them where they even, you know, rig something inside of Ukraine and then blame Ukrainians for it? Mm. And what would the response be from that? Okay, let's start with what the um, the basis is for the Russian claim that they're being threatened by Ukraine mm. and, and nuclear capabilities in, in Ukraine. This is complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's not the first time you've seen a, a, a dictator, an authoritarian claim that they their military action was necessary because they were under attack. Remember, Hitler started World War II by claiming that Poland was about to attack or had attacked uh, Germany. Uh, we see a similar kind of dynamic here. On, on the nuclear in, in particular, it's true that Ukraine used to have nuclear weapons. When Ukraine was the Ukrainian Federation, um, uh, part of uh, the, the Soviet Union, and it had stationed on its soil about uh, a thousand, I think, 1,700 nuclear weapons that were Soviet weapons under central Soviet control. So when the Soviet Union broke up at the end of 1991, Ukraine and Belarus and Kazakhstan had these weapons on their territory, and they were convinced to give them up. It didn't take much of a job to convince them because they didn't actually control them. They didn't know how to run them. They weren't their weapons. Um, they didn't have the technical capability of maintaining them. They didn't have the budget to maintain them. Um, and so they, they quickly gave up those weapons in exchange for security assurances from the West and from Russia and in tighter integration with, with, with Europe. Can they get those weapons back? No. Those weapons don't long, no longer exist. They were taken to Russia and disassembled. Can they build new ones? Absolutely not. Ukraine has no capability of building nuclear weapons. That is, they don't have the ability to enrich uranium, nope, which is one the core mm-hmm. of a bomb, like a Hiroshima bomb. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the ability to make plutonium, which is the, another material used in the Nagasaki bomb, for example. No, they can't make en- either one of those things. And even if they could, they don't have the capability to make them into weapons. They don't have the ability to put them, mate them with delivery vehicles like long-range missiles. So no, there is no nuclear threat from Ukraine. Could Russia stage some kind of nuclear incident? We were afraid of this when they seized Chernobyl. Because a lot of us thought, why are you doing that? Why are you taking over a nuclear waste site? Well, one fear was that they were going to use some of the highly radioactive materials, not for an explosive device. There was no material you could make a bomb out of there, but for a radiological device to, to mix some of that highly radioactive material with a conventional explosion and mm-hmm. radiate large areas of a downtown area, for example. They actually did seem to have, seem to have stolen some highly radioactive isotopes from Chernobyl when they left, but they haven't, they didn't trigger anything there. They didn't stage any kind of accident. They still have the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant under Mm -hmm. their control. And there are Mm -hmm. five, I think, maybe four nuclear reactors there. 
And that's a concern. You know, they yeah. still might stage something, intentionally cause um, a meltdown, cause a leak. So you're worried about that. I wouldn't be worried about a nuclear explosion. I'd be more worried about some kind of radiological event. Okay. Okay. Joe, the, what do you were talking about before, just so that, you know, to circle back for just a second, is that the dirty bomb? Is that when they when they say the dirty bomb? Is that what they're right. talking about? Yes, we call okay. it you know a radiological device. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that's a dirty yeah. bomb, and it can range from a terrorist type bomb, which is like a small amount of something like cesium one thirty seven, and you'd mix it with say ten pounds of dynamite, and mm -hmm. you'd spray radioactive dust over an area. Okay. It wouldn't kill anybody, but it would if you ingested it, it would give you cancer, so it would make the the area uninhabitable, but you could also go larger. You could be mixing in pounds and pounds of, of isotopes like this with a much larger explosive and cause some real serious immediate damage, plus um, making an area uninhabitable for years until you had to, until you cleaned it up, block, okay. you know, foot by foot. Which is now Chernobyl, right? I mean, the 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 soil that's there, Chernobyl, right? The, yeah, it was yeah, one still, of the big still radioactive with, soil. Exactly, with the with the, the the soldiers that were there, the Russian troops that were there, that were went back to Belarus and they got all they were all sick. Apparently, uh, they were digging yeah. trenches in radioactive exactly. soil. Never exactly. a good idea. No, no, no. But that exactly. just shows you the disrespect, you know, and that's one thing I think the West mm. really needs to understand is that Putin has absolutely no respect for life, not for his soldiers, not for his people. Right. And, you know, it's always been like that it's since Soviet days. Okay, so, and what about as far as the nuclear threat now to the West? Do you see mm -hmm. Russia crossing that line? Do you, yeah. like, what, what do you think of all their, you know, the threats they've been making? The risk of, of nuclear war is, is very low. It's highly unlikely. There are formidable barriers to this. I mean, we've been in a lot of international crises over the last 77 years since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. No one has ever used a nuclear weapon. It's, it's, it's what we call the nuclear taboo. You know, all kinds of countries that have them, some democracies, some dictatorships have never crossed that line for good reason. It's a terrifying line to cross. It's, it would be condemned internationally around the world, and you don't know what's going to happen next. And what's mm -hmm. going to be the response of, of your adversary, to, especially if it's a nuclear-armed adversary, to using something like this? However, in the last 10 or 15 years, the, once again, we have increased talk about using nuclear weapons at a, at a low level, finding a small nuclear weapon. So by, by today's standards, small is Hiroshima size, 15 kilotons or smaller, 10, 5, even 1 kiloton. Now, any of those explosives, even at the lowest possible level, would still be many times more powerful than any conventional weapon we have. Yeah. And, you're, and you're still creating intense heat that would set off mega firestorms. And of course, you have the radiation. So this is a it's not like using a conventional weapon. There is a clear difference between okay. the two. And any use by Putin would, would be met with horror and, uh, and condemnation, but he still might do it. And here's the different scenarios. Do you mind if I, I walk through oh, these? Oh, no, I, that's exactly what we want you to talk about. That's a lot of we people, have a question on that. Yeah, yes. exactly. Because okay. a lot of people think, okay, well, the first they're going to nuke, and then that's it, it's nuclear war. You know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's right. thermal 
huge like that film or whatever the you know when that little the day after yeah exactly no exactly well yeah could you explain to us yeah right so here's like think of it as this is maybe five different scenarios and and you can be sure by the way that that the White House is now is and the Pentagon is working through these scenarios in detail, and they probably have thirty five different scenarios, you know. But because there's all you, and you game these things out, and this is what they do all the time. So the, the 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 thinking has been in American and Russian circles that we have these weapons, and they're but they're too big. We're self deterred from using them, you know. So why don't we make them smaller, and then we can use them for a particular purpose? And we'd be crossing the nuclear threshold, but we wouldn't be crossing it much, and maybe we could get away with it. And that really, and so the U.S. has been okay. talking about this, and we under Trump, we have fielded two different w- low-yield weapons that are designed to be small. We fitted one on our, our it's called the W-76-2 warhead. We put it on a strategic submarine on one of our big missiles that can fly thousands of miles. But instead of carrying the normal 450 kiloton warhead, it's carrying a five kiloton warhead. So one third Hiroshima size. And the idea is you would use this first in a conflict. Even if the other guy hadn't fired a nuke, we would do it. So we have this philosophy, right? And so, and Russia does too. So the idea Mm. is if Putin starts to, or I would say if Putin starts to continue losing this war, Mm-hmm. He might feel desperate enough to, he has to do something dramatic to break the momentum and to change the dynamics on the battlefield. And under Russian strategy or Russian writings anyway, it's unclear mm-hmm. whether this mm-hmm. is actually formally part of Russian doctrine. They have something called escalate to de-escalate. And it's designed for precisely this scenario. If Russia is losing a conventional war with the West, it would fire off a nuclear weapon to signal the seriousness of the situation and to cause the West to back off. And the scenarios that, that are described for this involve, one, a demonstration shot. So fire mm. a nuclear weapon over the Black Sea, for example, just to get their attention. Right. In fact, mm-hmm. before we attacked Hiroshima, some of the scientists in the Manhattan Project had urged exactly this kind of thing for Japan. They said, don't use this horrible weapon on people. Just do a demonstration of it. Our military rejected that because they wanted the shock effect of a city. And I would suspect that Putin would too. A demonstration shot wouldn't serve his mm. purpose, although mm. it would immediately, the whole world would yeah. stop. If you yeah. did this, the yeah. whole world would stop and go, whoa, what just yeah. happened here? Okay. Yeah. So, so scenario number two, I think, is more likely that he uses it on a Ukrainian military target. So he takes a relatively small nuclear weapon. As I say, some of the ones that can be fitted on a cruise missile are about 10,000 tons of explosive force or the equivalent of about 20,000 of our regular conventional bombs. Our bombs tend to be about 1,000 pounds. So to imagine 20,000 of those dropping all at once on a military target, devastation, destruction, hundreds or thousands of people die, but you're not blowing up a city. And perhaps it's fairly isolated. And but it signals your purpose. It shows your intent. You know, what do you do? What does NATO do in that regard? The third possibility is that he does it and he fires it on a Ukrainian city that he takes out Kiev. Again, maybe Hiroshima size or so, and he takes it out. That's a major step up. Again, the world would stop, complete shock, and you'd have to decide what to do. 
The fourth possibility is that he, he, and this is discussed in the doctrine, is you fire it on a NATO target. Let's say a, a, a staging area in Poland where they're transiting and assembling some of the arms we're now transiting to, uh, to Ukraine. And he just takes that out. And the fifth possibility is that he fires it at the United States. Again, mm. this is discussed in this escalate to de-escalate doctrine. And he takes out a U.S. Uh, city or port with this. Mm. In that latter case, that is clearly the beginning of a nuclear war. There's no question in my mind that the U.S. military would want to respond with a nuclear weapon, right? That we would, that, that's it. We would go right after them. Uh, uh, and then you off to the races because nobody knows what happens nobody next. Nobody knows what happens right? after that. Right? right. But on the other cases, even hitting Poland, uh, you know, there's the U.S. conventional and NATO conventional forces are so mm. powerful, are so precise that you don't really need to use a nuclear weapon in response. For example, mm. the U.S. could once just send in um, uh, NATO air and ground forces and, and you'd really enter the war right away and you would devastate uh, Russian forces on the ground within days, certainly weeks. Yeah, yeah. It'd be over. The war would yeah. be over. You could also decide to selectively strike, so not do that, but strike at the site that uh, or the base that launched this attack. So okay. if if a base in Russia had launched a, a cruise missile that had taken out a Ukrainian military site, you could immediately direct precision fire, conventional, on that base mm -hmm. and destroy it with okay. uh, dozens or hundreds of cruise missiles, et cetera. And you might even start going after the command and control system in, in Russia with cyber attacks or with conventional attacks to try to knock out his ability to launch any more uh, weapons. All of this is very risky, and I'm just giving you a crude outline of the kinds of responses you might expect from, yeah. from the West. All of these are, have great risks because you don't know what Putin does next. And, and that's why you want to prevent this scenario from unfolding in the first place, because every step after the use of a nuclear weapon is much more dangerous than anything that preceded it. Wow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Whoa, this is sobering. This is absolutely sobering. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, no, it's good to know these different, that it's not the actual first response, right? This is extremely important to understand. And there's probably, Joe, how many scenarios are there? You mapped oh. out five, but there's probably what? How many other scenarios are you yeah, thinking I, of? Well, like, 
Right, oh, and then gradations of this, there's all kinds of things you can imagine using. So for example, I gave you the idea of using a nuclear weapon on a Ukrainian military target. And I said, maybe it's a low yield weapon. Well, maybe it's a large yield weapon. That's another mm -hmm. scenario on, okay. on this. Okay. Maybe so they don't, maybe they claim credit for it. Maybe out, they yeah. don't claim credit uh -huh. for it. And maybe they insist that this is the secret nuclear Ukrainian yeah. cabal, Yeah. right? Yeah. And that they blew themselves up. And yeah. so, so you see, so you, that's what you, uh, yeah. every one of these starts to have variations on it. And there's ones that I haven't thought of that I'm sure the, um, yeah. the White House is thinking of. Of course, of course. Actually, I want to circle back for just a second because you mentioned NATO and NATO forces. And I was reading about that, you know, the, the, the UK and also France have nuclear weapons as well. Are yes. they in this scenario as well? Or, are they, you know, we don't really, yeah, they could be, they could be. And Boris Johnson would say, would answer yes to this mm -hmm, scenario. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. in fact, just um, over the weekend, there was a, a Russian, uh, Olga, maybe you, maybe you saw this. There was a Russian newscaster who aired mm -hmm. uh, on the equivalent of uh, Russia's 60 minutes show, yeah. aired a, a, yeah. an animation of a, yeah. a nuclear, a Russian nuclear attack on United Kingdom. Yeah, you know, trying yeah. trying to react yep. to Boris Yeltsin's speech to the Ukrainian Parliament, trying to push him back. So y UK is in the mix, France is in the mix, but it's highly unlikely either one of those countries would use a nuclear weapon without checking with the United States. I, I, on this level, I think the United States is calling the shots. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, they've been um over the years. You know how many times I've watched their animations over the years of striking like Nevada. Like mm -hmm. even just in the empty field, I think there's something in Nevada that they're very interested in because every simulation they have, it's like, oh, we're not going to kill anyone, but we're going to strike this target in Nevada. Yeah. And they show like a simulation of a nuclear missile flying um, to U.S. And I mean, this yeah. is like, or, or Florida. Know, the past decade then. Florida. Yeah. yeah. Florida. Oh, Florida. They, 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 we got to no, say they, Florida. Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> they showed one uh, when they <laughs> unveiled some of their weapons back in, oh, I, I can't remember, maybe 2017, they showed a, a nuclear missile heading into Mar-a-Lago. I remember. <laughs> oh, they, really? They were angry. Yeah, they were Ford angry Bonas. at Trump for yeah. something that oh, okay. he um, didn't do. And <laughs> they were it. ranting all weekend. And then the next thing that's was a, suddenly like this uh, right. simulation so, of a right. nuclear so the question, weapon. The and, question that's being debated on this is how seriously do you take this? And right now there are sort of like three camps. Yeah. And one is, this is all bluff. We shouldn't be intimidated by this because the problem you have right now is that these weapons that we've been trained and grew up with as uh, been told protect us and are the power that underline everything else the U.S. does militarily and mm -hmm. will allow us to confront aggression and coercion around the world um, are actually being used as a nuclear shield by Putin to stop us from confronting his aggression. I mean, that's why NATO is not more deeply involved. It's this okay. risk, yeah. right? So okay. you have this. So there are some people who are saying, don't be deterred by that. It's all a bluff. We should go in with ground troops now. We should go in with, mm. uh, with, with airstrikes now. The other side says the risk is so great, you have to take this very seriously, that you shouldn't even be arming Ukraine with uh, artillery, with howitzers, with heavy combat right. equipment now. It's too risky. Back out. And the, the third side, I guess, you know, that's where I put myself, is like, we have to take this seriously. 
but you can calibrate your response the way Joe Biden is. So what you're doing is giving Ukraine the weapons they need, but you're not doing it in a way that's so provocative that you push Putin against the wall and you cause him to lash out by something as crazy as using a nuclear weapon. I got to give the administration high marks for how they've been handling this. They've been strong. They've been resolute, but they've been careful. They have not been reckless. They have not been provocative. They haven't matched any of Putin's nuclear threats with threats of our own. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I did want to ask you about that. But before I do about Biden's leadership, okay, so to maybe get a little more into uh, that I wanted to ask, this is a silly question, okay, but I get it all the time. Like, okay, Putin just decides, all right, we're going to use a nuclear weapon. Is he the only one pressing the button? Like, how does that happen exactly on the Russian side? It's it's unclear exactly, really? but um, mm-hmm. whereas in the United States, only the president of the United States has the ability to launch the weapon, and he's followed around 24 hours a day, seven days a week by an officer carrying the nuclear football, the briefcase, with the communication yeah. codes and the nuclear war options that would allow him to do this. And if he wanted to do it, the president of the United States could launch a nuclear weapon within about five minutes of deciding to do so. It would take five minutes mm-hmm. to get on the phone, to reach the commanding general, and to launch a weapon, and no one could stop him. So he has sole an unfettered authority to launch nuclear weapons, doesn't need the approval of anybody else. In Russia, we believe that there are three people who have the nuclear football. Okay. So it's Putin, it's mm-hmm. the Minister of Defense, mm. uh, soy guy, mm-hmm. and it's the Chief of Staff of the General Forces, uh, Gerasimov, currently. And each one of them has a nuclear football. And we believe the system is set up so that all three of them have to agree before you would use it but it's a little unclear we don't know what's happened in recent years with putin and whether he's overridden this system or not regardless i think the two of them are so so under his control that it's highly unlikely that they would disagree with the putin decision to launch and if they did they'd be they'd be fired and replaced by someone who would agree yeah or that's the system or a window they just sort of So the system in Russia basically is actually safer than the United States system, (laughs) but with an autocrat, nothing's safe. It's still concentrated power for people to launch weapons that could end the world with no debate, no discussion, no involvement of anybody else. Okay. Okay. I was chuckling because, um, you know, following their media, social media and chatter from inside, I think Shoigu has already been put under house arrest a few times, had a heart attack. Then there were rumors he died. Then they, re- they he didn't look too good the other day. And, 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 yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. He didn't look good. And, and, and there's so much chatter around him. And then Gerasimov, Putin is so furious with him that you saw. I mean, I've never in my life imagined before humiliation purpose to send him literally to Izium, you know, to command the local, uh, hey, call it, um, uh, uh, hey, call it the battalion. The yeah, the and, and then there were reports that he got injured and same thing. I mean, uh, right. there's so much like swirling things. So I'm like, my goodness, those two <laughs> Putin will knock them over the head and take their, um, <laughs> nuclear yeah, exactly. uh, uh, football. Yeah. Here, have some tea. Yeah. Drink a tea yeah, exactly. and you know, and uh, hey, have a seat, have some tea. I'll pour you some. Yeah, that's basically so. The, well, you know, what worries me now is all the chatter on the Russian media and in the mm. policy statements. You know, they're starting to make nuclear use sound acceptable, 
right? Exactly. They're normalizing it. And, and this is, this is like what's changed. Something... Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, we're going to do this. We can mm -hmm. do this. It would be a good thing if we did this. Yeah. So don't be afraid of it. This yep. would be a sign of Russian strength if we did this. So you're always worried about this kind of propaganda, you know, paving the way for, for an act that they might even not actually be contemplating doing. But in a moment of crisis, it could be seen even to the, the decision makers more acceptable because you've been talking about it for so long. Yeah, 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 thinking, that's what they've been doing. Yeah. And they actually started this because... They've been planning this invasion on Ukraine for years because they invaded in 2014, but they've been laying the groundwork. First, they wanted to capture Belarus and then move on. And in, I think it was 2018 or 19 that Putin signed a decree um, mm -hmm. allowing for nuclear response in a conventional and uh, usage. Yes, so that's right. They changed their doctrine. That's right. They used yeah. to have something we call no first use policy. So mm -hmm. that is, they mm -hmm. promised not to use a nuclear weapon first, and they changed that to basically to correspond to the U.S. position. We reserve the right to use a nuclear weapon first, even though we have the best military in the world. We still reserve the right to use a nuclear weapon if we believe that our uh, security requires it. That's that's the doctrine. Wow. If our, if we are, there's a yeah, serious threat to the nation. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They added it, and I mean, their serious threat could be, you know, Belarus. It could be Ukraine that they claim is theirs. Could be anything, or it so could it's be... not even Russian territory. Exactly. If the state is threatened, well, what's the state? You know, if the, the national security interests of Russia are threatened, well, what's that? And and you mm. know, for, for somebody like Putin, who is l'état moi, you know, the right. state is me. Yeah. If he feels threatened, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Because he identifies, he is the, he feels he's the state. That's it. Yeah. So if he's under uh, threat, personal threat, no, it could be something. Yikes. Yikes. Well, thank goodness Biden is in the White House. Exactly. Right? <laughs> thank goodness. Uh, well, uh, yes. No, I, 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 yes. You yes. know, much, can you imagine what this would be like if Trump was still the president and what, you know, what the reaction would be, oh. how disunited the West would be, yeah. would put, you know, et cetera. Or if there was somebody less capable. I mean, yeah. the ben, one of Biden's benefits is that he's been dealing with these issues for almost 50 years. Right. So he, he, he in some ways, is the perfect president for this moment. He gets it. He understands it. And, it's, and he's assembled a team around him that has, has handled it. I, I got to say, about as well as you could expect under the circumstances, carefully, methodically, forcefully. Um, and, and continuing to advance so that, for example, we're now sending heavy weapons to Ukraine, mm -hmm. these artillery pieces, armored personnel vehicles, artillery rounds. We can talk about that later if, if you want. But this is something he didn't do in the beginning mm -hmm. of the war because he thought it'd be too provocative. Mm -hmm. He you know, waited until we found, no, I think I can do this without provoking Putin. And so far, he's right. OK, so in steps, basically, this is in what steps. we've been seeing. Yeah. Stepping away from the nuclear, there has been... A lot, and I actually just wrote about it for SEPA, there has been a lot of not only propaganda, it literally is the same identical playbook of what was used with Ukraine, except it took several, like a few months with Ukraine um, right before Putin launched a, a war um, to with Moldova, with Transnistria. And here it's like being done in such an escalated like time that what took 
uh, them to lay out, you know, these false flag operations and and the propaganda behind it is now taking like two weeks. And it went from, I mean, literally them saying they need the Russian government saying they need to protect the Russian speakers to then suddenly calling uh, President Sandu a Nazi and they have to step into uproot Nazism. And then um, uh, Igor Strelkov, who was behind the one of the key people behind the annexation of Crimea, came out with a very bizarre but troubling um, insider information, which is a lie, that Romania had sent troops inside to Moldova, sure. and that there's a warehouse with with uh, with uh, Moldovan militaries, and the Romanian military is going to um, you know put on and fight under Moldovan uh, with Moldovan militaries to start a war. This is all a lie. But then right after that, we saw suddenly a series of attacks, and they're just continuing every few days. How? What is your assessment of that? And what do you think? And how do you see, like, do you see Putin trying to maybe test with Moldova and then expand it to NATO? Or do you think he wouldn't, he would just keep it in? Yeah, well, you've explained this beautifully. And and, and in the national security circles in the West, there's increasing concern about this kind of what we call horizontal escalation. So, you know, instead of just escalating on the battlefield, mm-hmm. and the, the, the battle you're fighting against Ukrainian forces in the Donbass region, you open up another front mm-hmm. and you move, you move it there. And yes, I think you have to be worried about this and the signs are troubling. The ones you just detailed, as well as statements uh, last week by a, a leading Russian general that said that the war aim was to take over all of the southern coast of Ukraine. So all of that, the, the, yeah. the coastline across the Black yeah. Sea, all the way through Odessa and linking up with Moldova, well, there you are. Mm-hmm. So we have those, what is it, 1,500 Russian forces, yeah. uh, 8,000, I forget how many are in this, the area they call Transnistria. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you got to be worried about places, you know, you never heard of. And, and you know, part of this is gets to the the issue of why is Putin doing any of this to begin with? And one of the reasons is to take over Ukraine's resources, including its grain. And, and the, 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 the grain fields of Ukraine so far have been relatively untouched. That is, farmers are planting the grain and right. planning on harvesting it. But when they come to sell it, well, now they need the ports on the southern coast. Right. So Kershon, which the Russians have captured or are trying to capture, mostly captured, is a grain port. Mariupol is a grain port. Odessa is a grain port. You, you know, they've got the one, they've almost gotten Mariupol the second, mm-hmm. and they may have designs on Odessa. You take those over and you basically then control Ukraine's uh, uh, crop. Which has enormous implications, um, yeah. both on food supply and the economy of Ukraine. Yeah. And this appears to be what, uh, at least, one of Putin's uh, aims in going in there in the first place. As Brignu Brzezinski said, uh, that without Ukraine, Russia cannot be an empire, and with Ukraine, Russia is automatically an empire. It is that land that yeah. gives Russia this kind of global 
capability that, that it doesn't have without it. And it's why in this region of the world, there have been over 11 wars fought on this territory in the last 250 years, going yeah. back to the Crimean Wars, mm -hmm. the Russo-Turkish Wars. It's why Catherine the Great sent her army across mm -hmm. Ukraine to, to, and, and founded Odessa in the first place. It's all about controlling that farmland and that enormous grain output. Yeah. And so that's that's a big part of what's going on here that we're not aware of really uh, as, yeah. as much as we should be when examining Putin's motives yeah. for starting this war in the first well, place. Well, because a lot of people don't study, yeah. right? That's what Stalin did. Well, Stalin's what Stalin gold. did. Stalin's gold, right? That's what they called <laughs> That's what Stalin the wheat did. and the grain. They called, didn't they? They called it Stalin's gold. Stalin's gold. And the That's war it. against the, 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 what he called the rich peasants, the kulaks, the mm. massacre of That's some right. four million of those the during the Stalin purges. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No. It was all over this control of the grain. And what people don't understand, what we're seeing now, this actually, this military strategy came out in 2009, and it was something internal that happened. One of the key people inside of Ukraine, who was former KGB colonel, and he um, kind of got pushed outside from power. Anyway, it was a domestic issue, but Russia got worried enough that they designed this military strategy. Their military strategy was to take all of uh, Odessa, Mariupol, Melitopol, yeah. Uh, here's on mm -hmm. cut Ukraine off, Kharkiv, mm -hmm. um, cut Ukraine off from the port, take the east, take the south, and then have access, expand their access to the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. So this is what was there on top of their military strategy with Ukraine, which then, you know, went into effect after they lost Yanukovych and he fled to Russia. That's what triggered this. And this is what they actually attempted to do. They tried to take Odessa. They tried to take these cities, Kharkiv, in 2014. But on top of their other military strategies, the expansion of they have been forever talking about taking the Sowaki Corridor mm -hmm. so they could connect Kaliningrad to Sowaki Corridor, take Belarus, mm -hmm. and then take the Baltics, and then take Ukraine, and then Moldova. And this is something regardless of who the president yeah. is in the United States, what the policies are, whether we have a reset, we don't have a reset, this is what their military strategy is, and they're quietly going about it because, I mean, Belarus was softly annexed, and once they had Belarus, they expanded their yep. military field and then can move on to Ukraine. So, you know, and I, when I saw these arguments here, I was like, what? Or blaming Biden. I'm like, what does yeah. Biden have to do with something exactly. that was like put into effect like over a, a decade ago? Yep. They put well, this. Let me strongly agree with you. You know, and this is not a defensive war. No. You know, this is, and, and, and especially now where the strategy seems to have shifted from just scor to a scorched earth policy. You know, he is just w spreading wanton destruction. And, the, 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 and uh, there's no other word for it. This, this is a fascist ideology where you were just obliterating cities, you're rounding up and executing people, you're raping women and girls, you're killing any man who might serve in the yeah. military services, you're, 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 you're tearing down yeah. Ukrainian flags, you're, you're re-educating re school ch yeah. ch children to learn Russian and to, and to consider themselves Russian. You know, this is, this is at least cultural genocide that's going on right now. And I don't believe he will stop 
with Ukraine. So you've got to stop this right now. And in the process, you know, you can develop policies. My friend Matt Doss has a wonderful article in Foreign Affairs right now talking mm-hmm. about how you can improve policies to stop Putin by having more progressive elements to your your foreign policy your policy now. For example, we want to deny Putin the oil the money from sell, sell of oil. Well, let's accelerate our transition and Europe's transition to a green economy. And you, Monique, probably hear these yeah. debates. Yeah. It's not just not buying Russian oil and buying Saudi oil. Let's not buy oil. Yeah. Let's, ex- let's move it along. Ways. Right? Yeah. And you're solving two problems at once. Yeah. You're reducing reliance yeah. on petrostates, especially yeah. the autocratic petrostates, and you're saving the planet. Yeah. And, 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 and once you start thinking of it that way, you realize there's a whole lot of very good things that can be accomplished in the effort to stop Putin and to reverse his invasion. Yeah. Joe, how do you see this thing panning out, let's say, in the next little while? What's your what's your assessment on that? Okay, number one, mm-hmm. nobody knows, right? <laughs> and, and, and nobody's known from day one where we, we, yeah. we all thought this was going to be over in a couple of weeks, right? So number two, you can start to sketch out scenarios. You know, this could end up being um, a collapse of the Russian forces. You could see the Russian forces collapse like they did in World War One, when the, the mm-hmm. Russian front just collapsed. Um, you could, and, and, and a, a sort of chaotic end of the war effort. You could see this develop into a grinding, sustained war that's more looks like the Saudi war on Yemen or even the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, something mm. that simmers for a long time over mm. years and mm. flares up occasionally in fighting. So these are all different scenarios. Nobody knows. If, if, if I was to, I think the best option right now is a slow defeat of Putin. Because you're starting to be concerned and you see people starting to write about this. You don't, while we want to weaken Russia so they can't do this again, you don't want a collapsed Russia. You don't want a, a collapse of Putinism such that you have uh, the problems you had in, in 1991, 92, 93, fears of loose nukes, chaos in the economy, uh, perhaps ultra-nationalist, more ultra-nationalist forces rising mm. to seize, because this could get worse. There are people that might be worse than Putin, worse than you know? him. Oh dear! So right, so oh. so you're starting to see where. So so what you want <laughs> Many. Is, is what is actually, and this is what's sort of encouraging to me right now, is you see the Russian offensive in the Donbass region stalling. They are not making any significant advances, and in some areas they're being beaten back by the Ukrainian forces. And you see new armaments coming in that are really going to give the Ukrainians an edge. They already mm-hmm. have the edge in tactics, in morale, mm. you know, and in fighting spirit. I mean, what mm. the Ukrainians are doing yeah. is astonishing. With yeah. these kind of howitzers that are coming in, these kind of more precision-guided weapons, the kind of intelligence they're getting from the United States and other countries and their ability to pinpoint target, they're combining, in, in my world, you're combining uh, in, intelligence with precision targeting. So you know where the generals yeah. are, yeah. and you have yeah. the weapons that can take out that building, that car, right? Yeah. And whether we're talking about drones or or, or precision guided uh, missiles, or now we have precision guided artillery shells, which we are shipping to Ukraine as we speak, mm-hmm. you could see this thing result in the in the this, the defeat and the pushback of Russian forces out of the Donbass region, region, such that Putin sues for peace. Because he's mm. the one that can end this. And he says, okay, 
let's ha- let's have a ceasefire, which the Ukrainians have been asking for for weeks, mm-hmm. a ceasefire and discussions over the status of these disputed areas, which Ukraine has been asking for. And then you can calm the thing down and you can arrive at, at um, a, an agreement that will probably involve territorial concessions on the part of Ukraine, as difficult as that is, but will result in a stronger Ukraine that's able to resist any further Russian advances, advances in the future. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the best. And then Putin stays in power, but he's been hobbled. Yeah, I agree with you 100% because there are people who push for regime change and think, you know, U.S. and the West should do that. That will harden Russians for the next 100 years. I mean, they will despise the West. The best, my personal thing is containment, just like North Korea. Pretend they don't exist, lock them up, lock the country up, don't do business with it. And, right. you know, and that's it. And and cut all the Western, uh, uh, like, um things that attract them. And that's it. So I that's, that's why I best. support what because Secretary... I can promise you... That's what Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said. We want to weaken Russia so they can't do this again. Some of my friends went ballistic over that. Mm. Oh, my God, this is an expansive uh, war aim. Look at what you're doing. Mm. No, no, no. He didn't say we want to destroy Russia. He didn't say we want to collapse Russia. I think it's the appropriate response. You want to weaken yeah. them so they can't do this again. You can do that with export controls, denying them sort of key technology. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. You can do that by not buying their oil anymore. You can weaken them without without collapsing them. I, I think that is actually the, the correct goal for the U.S. at this point. No direct U.S. NATO forces, yeah, but, and if they but, come- but give the Ukrainians what they need. And they appear to be this is unbelievable. Yeah. Ukrainians appear now to be able to defeat the Russian army, something none of us thought possible two months ago. Yeah. Now it looks it looks likely at this point. Yeah. Joe, can I ask you maybe a, one of the last questions? I don't know whether yeah. Olga then has another one. What impressed you most about the Ukrainian armed forces? What is it that, let's say, I'm sure that in the 24th, you were probably a little, you know, there are lots of people that were in shock. I don't know whether you were or not. But what has impressed you up to now? Like, what do you say? Oh, my God, this is great. I'll give you my answer. And I think a lot of people would say this. It's the um, small unit initiative. Hmm. It's the ability of small units of Ukrainians to to take on armored tank columns, stop them in their tracks by knocking out the lead tank and then picking off the rest over time. Okay. I mean, this is one of the great stories of the war that will, you know, military historians and logistics yeah, gonna be experts are going to be talking about. Because, yes, in Donbass right now, we're seeing set piece battles, you know, right. massed artillery trench warfare. But in, in Kiev and where they stopped this, mm-hmm. It was small groups, small groups going into the forested areas. You know, they'd, they'd come through a village. They would devastate the village. They'd be moving their tank comms through. They would five, six guys, sometimes on ATVs with javelin missiles, mm-hmm. would knock out the lead column, call in the coordinates of the entire column. Artillery from the rear would go and then take it out. And it was all made possible by this small group initiative. That's something the Russians don't have. You've seen it. They have a top-down a structure that the, yeah. the local troops, the frontline troops aren't allowed to make decisions. It's the generals that call the shots, which is why you've seen so many generals traveling to the front line, and which is why you've seen so many killed, 12 Russian generals 12 killed right now. Oof. They don't have what the Ukrainians have. And 
in the process of this, they've demonstrated the ability of small arms, small precision arms, javelins, stingers, to take out, you know, armored units that cost yeah. much more than than the, the the cost of the javelin missile. You know, a hundred to one or, or twenty to thirty to one wow. uh, in cost exchange ratio. And you, a lot of people, are starting to look at this and going, "Whoa." This is a, a, a change in military technology. The defense, because of these new technologies, with these kinds of tactics, now has the advantage over even the most powerful offense. And you're seeing it in the sea battles as well. When you can knock out mm. a Russian cruiser yeah. with two precision-guided missiles. <laughs> right! It's true! Go, it's so, like, boom! Uh, yeah. So I'm telling you, above and beyond everything we've been talking about, about this level of warfare and what's happening and what Ukrainians are showing us is is sending mm -hmm. ripples through the um, the national security communities and, and what it tells you about what kind of weapons you need and what you can do with what you've got. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. And to end it on a lighter note, uh, probably their most popular weapon has become the tractor that has been taking all these disabled, <laughs> disabled tanks. It's true, and that's it. And you see it's them true. like attaching the Russian it's tank true. and it's true. I love driving it away. I always go and try yeah. whenever I need a moment of levity. I'm not kidding <laughs> you, because a lot of this stuff is really difficult to get yeah. through. And I go on my Twitter farmers. feed and I try to find the Ukrainian tractor corps, and I just go through. And I That's try to great. look at all of those, and I love them. And actually, my husband's—he uh, um, knows all about tractors, so he says, "Oh, this is a John Deere. Oh, this is something else, right?" And he knows the, like exactly what it is. He said, "I can't believe these guys because I can't." Believe it. It's like, yeah, yeah, man, that's it. Precision guided tractors. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, guys, it's been a real pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much for thank having you, me on Joe. your show. Grazie. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Prego. Hey everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Kamara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordi Mycellus of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.